Shalom, shalom, Betariel and friends of Betariel, and welcome to the Wednesday Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy, a powerful book which brings out the heart of God down to us, demonstrating how he is so close to his people and to all believers. Today we'll speak about the fear of the Lord and our obedience to his word. Moses actually stresses these things in telling us that this is where happiness and harmony in our lives are. This is where it begins. Deuteronomy is his last word speech that is after 40 years of ministry. And it is there that he gives us so many uh, good treasures, you know, to, to, to dig in. And the fear of the Lord does not mean to be scared of God, but to give him his right place in our lives, in our world. To use Malachi's illustration, the fear of the Lord will open up the windows of heaven until the Lord will pour out the blessing until it overflows. Now, before we get into Deuteronomy, let us take a question. Sharon will read for us. In one of your sermons, you mentioned that Jesus said that he would not come to bring peace on earth. And when I read the passage in Matthew 10, he also added that he came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Did he bring, did he come to bring peace or did he come to bring the sword? Uh, thank you for this question. You know, this passage is a reality check for all believers, reminding us that our faith is very often not welcomed and is seen as very hostile uh, to others. Let us look at this passage in the context of Matthew and to in order, and to this context, because things have not changed much. So uh, the, the Jewish people at the time of uh, the gospel then expected the Messiah to come only once to establish his kingdom. They were not taught to see the two comings with the first one being his suffering and atoning death for us. And so when Yeshua came, they were surprised that he did not establish his kingdom then. Yet there are over a hundred prophecies of the first coming of the Messiah and of the great hostility and opposition he will trigger between the first and the second coming and were included in between there. This is reflected in what Yeshua says in Matthew 10. Let us read the three verses and see why Jesus spoke these words there and then. Verse 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own family. These are very strong words. In the context of Matthew, it was quite clear that the conditions were already hostile. In Matthew 12, they, they, they will seek for ways to, to kill him. And already by Matthew 10, we know that the religious leaders have already decreed that whoever confesses Jesus as the Messiah would be excommunicated. But see in the words, in these words, Jesus brings them back to the Hebrew scriptures by quoting Micah 7, 6, when he speaks of family conflict uh, because of faith. The last words are taken from Micah, almost verbatim. The Lord says through Micah. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. 
A man's enemies are the men of his own household. But the question is, why does Jesus quote Micah? First, he always brought them back to their source, that is the Hebrew scriptures. And second, if this passage of Micah was quoted, it is because Israel found herself in the same condition then as she was at the time of the first century. And you know what? As she is even today. In both cases... The uh, diaspora was soon approaching. Forty years after Jesus' words were pronounced, Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jewish people went to live in countries around the world as they are today. As for Micah, a little more than a hundred years later, the Babylonian diaspora occurred where Jerusalem was also destroyed. And secondly... This passage from Micah must have been well known to the religious leaders as it is mentioned a few times in their own writings as they specifically, specifically place Micah's words in 7.6 right at the time preceding the coming of the Messiah. In there they place the events of Micah 7.6 right before his coming. To mention only one because there are a few. They wrote in the Talmud in the book of Sota. With the footprints of the Messiah, presumption increases and dearth increases. The vine gives its fruit and wine at great cost, and the government turns to heresy. And there is no reproof, and the son dishonors the father, and the daughter rises up against the mother. And so when Yeshua quoted these words, they, they knew what he was talking about. So Jesus was appealing to the word of God and to their writings as well. Now it is clear that since Yeshua came, rare were the times of peace in, on this earth. And according to biblical prophecies, there will be no lasting peace until he comes back. But what about persecution within our families. This is what he's speaking about here. While today the situation of having a man against his father, a daughter against her mother are infrequent, they, however, happen. They happen. I know they happen for many of our Jewish members here at Bet Ariel. Uh, are, for them, it's still happening. And there are some who today are champions in rehashing the words of Jesus in verse 37, the following verse, actually, which says... He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You know, this is a favorite verse of these anti-missionaries who are trying to place guilt trip on those Jewish people who believe in Jesus. I remember when I was a young believer, they had advised my family member, a family member, to post these words of Matthew 10.37 in their doorpost to make sure we see these verses when visiting. But is Jesus asking us to hate our parents? Far from it. The family unit is what is most precious to him. However, consider the context. The family members are not those we think of. In verse 21, we learn that a brother will deliver up a brother to death. He's speaking about death. And a father, his child. While this refers to the tribulation and, and small pockets of time over the centuries, what we must consider is that when family members begin to do these things because of one's faith, the advice in every generation is the same. We ought to put Yeshua first and let them not condemn us or condemn the God of the Bible. 
In response to these attacks, I remember we have found one great verse in Joshua, which says, But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and praise God we still do today. So this passage is a reality check. We are not in heaven yet. The Bible sees, uh, sees us in a battleground, but going from victory to victory. And one more point. Many today in churches believe that this passage of Matthew is passé. They believe that Satan is bound and that we are now in the messianic times or in the millennium and that the church is on its way to change the world by bringing peace to it. These are today the majority in the visible church and especially adopted by the Catholic church and today many evangelical churches. For them, the word of Jesus in Matthew 10.34 when he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword should be changed to now the church has come to establish peace on earth. But notice, by the way, how, how history just repeats itself. The condition of the church today in its majority is this, in the same predicament as the Jews were at the time of Jesus. They both expected or expect a new world without evil. The Jewish people expected peace without the death and resurrection of the Messiah. The majority of churches today expect peace without the end time prophecies. Now, a last word. While there is conflict and persecution, the believer, the believer, those who accepted Yeshua as their personal Savior, is well protected. He is sheltered and always given the proper tools to, to confront any situation he or she is called to face. Let us now move into the book of Deuteronomy. We are on page 11 of your handout on the top. However, uh, the following information is not on you, in your handout. It is an addition you can write down. I will uh, remind you when we resume following your handout. So we are in Deuteronomy chapter 10. After the account of the golden calf and how Moses sought and found those responsible for building it, we are given the number of those actually who were found. They represent about 10% of the Jewish population right there. It does not take many people actually to put down a whole nation. So this information is found in Exodus 37:28. This is what it says. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. This is important information when we compare, actually, the two dispensation of the law and of grace. This is how the dispensation of the law began, with the death of 3,000 people. But this number, this number is prophetic, because at the opening of the new dispensation in Acts chapter 2, with the birth of the Ecclesia, that is the body of the Messiah, we find that 3,000 Jews came to believe and be baptized, indicating a new era of grace. So when the church was born, at the, I'm talking about the church, the body of the Messiah, at the Feast of Shavuot or Pentecost, we find the same number of Jews. We read in Acts 2.41, that is, after the coming of the Spirit in the hearts of the people, then those who gladly received his words were baptized. At, and that same day, they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. 
So we have at the beginning of the dispensation of the law, at the birth of the nation of Israel, 3,000 men who died. Then at the beginning of the dispensation of grace, with, with the birth of the church, which was made up of the remnant of the nation of Israel, 3,000 Jews were saved. What, what is happening? What is the difference? Grace. Grace. As we read in John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Messiah Yeshua. This is not to say that the law is not good. Far from it. It is good, very good, but its purpose was so that sin may be brought out. Because with the law came the punishment. And so, 3,000 people died. But that special grace of the Lord continued through the Jewish Bible history. And then as if to reconcile the number of those who rebelled, then the Spirit comes to prove that God's grace is still with His people. And again, 3,000 Jews were now saved. Again, when I speak of the body of the Messiah, or when I speak of the church, I speak of the biblical church, or, or the one which is based on the word of God. And so these new believers were the new priests who went to bring the word of God. Now we're back uh, following as slow, closely as we can the handout. Okay, uh, There always be some new information and verses in there. So we're in page 10, section B. So after the account, we found in the first 11 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 10, a new section that is opening up to us, beginning with verse 12. It is actually a closing appeal, a conclusion uh, to, to what had been said up to now. This comes just before the exposition of the law, which begins actually in chapter 12. So listen to Moses' advice. Let us read verses 12 to 13 in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? and to keep the commandments of the Lord and His statutes, which I commanded you today for your good. See how it begins. And now, Israel. And now that all these things were freely given, now that you know so much and experience so much, and these words are for believers today as well, now what does the Lord require of you? First, uh, many believe uh, th that it is from this verse where, where we get the statement on which is based the fundamental Jewish doctrines of the absolute free will of man. This statement is found in the Talmud, in Bereshit chapter 5, verse 3, which incorporated Deuteronomy 12 to it reads, Everything is in the hands of heaven except the fear of heaven, as it says. And now, Israel, what does the Lord, thy God, ask of you but to fear, but to fear? Quoting Deuteronomy, our passage of today. The concept of free will was disputed among the Jews of the time as it is today among uh, some scholars, believing scholars. According to Josephus, actually, the, the Pharisees believed in the freedom of man concerning his choice to accept God's divine calling. But they also believed in divine providence. The Sadducees the other party ascribed everything to chance, denying providential guidance. No wonder they just disappeared. 
The Essenes were like the ultra-Calvinists. They denied human freedom altogether and maintained the doctrine of predestination. However, without going too much on a tangent, what we see here is that these Jews understood the importance of this passage in front of them and took special interest in the concept of the fear of the Lord. In the words, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God. And so the first requirement for the people of God is to acquire a fear of the Lord and from there they could properly walk his ways, walk his ways and to love him and to serve him. The problem, by the way, today with the concept of the fear of the Lord is that it is for many an ill-defined, elusive idea, but it needs to be brought down to an objective, practical and workable concept. Yet the fear of the Lord is spoken of so many times in the scriptures, some 40 times in the scriptures. It at times is also spoken of as the fear of the Almighty, the fear of Him, the fear of you speaking to God. What then is the fear of the Lord? Let us begin with the book of Proverbs, which gives us actually a good definition as it stresses also that fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord then is to properly know God and to come to really love Him with all our heart, our mind, through trust and obedience to His precepts, even when we do, it doesn't, they do not seem to, to be right for us, even when they require much changes in our lives. And this love will in turn be reflected in all areas of our lives, especially also in our love for our neighbors. The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes comes to the same conclusion as Moses. At the end of his book, he says, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. This was the conclusion of perhaps the richest man who ever lived on earth. It is only later that he realized that God must be first in all things. As Yeshua said, Seek ye first the kingdom, and I will give you these things. Paul also comes to the same conclusion as Moses and as the writer of Ecclesiastes. We remember in Romans chapter 3, a very powerful chapter, where he gives us a long list that consists of 14 indictments on the entire human race because of wickedness. There he describes the one who has suppressed the knowledge of God from his mind. Beginning with verse 10, he quotes the Hebrew scriptures with these words. There is none righteous, no, not one. Their throat is an empty tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. There is none righteous, no, not one. This doesn't mean that man is not capable of doing many good things. But in God's standard, none of these things are good enough to win us a place in heaven. There is none who seeks after God, it says. Seeking after God has actually been the history of the religions, but the truth is only found in Yeshua and his words who calls every man 
to repent. This is what Jesus meant when he says in John 6.44, No one comes to, to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Or in John 6.65, Therefore I said to you that no one can come to me unless he has been granted to him by my Father. But there is something I want to draw your attention in the long list of Romans chapter 3. Notice the last thing he mentions, Romans 3.18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the conclusion which he draws by actually quoting Psalm 36. This is, by the way, again the sixth of the specific body references Paul makes in this verse, uh, in these verses in order to make his accusations vivid. Six, by the way, is the number of men. Through Romans 3, 10 to 18, I encourage you to read it. Paul has referred to the throat, verse 13, to the tongues, verse 13 again, to the lips, verse 13, to the mouth, verse 14, to the feet, feet, that is, verse 15. Now he mentions the eyes in verse 18. Six body parts. The last one, our eyes, are our organ of vision. So to have a fear of God before our eyes means that we have to have God constantly in our thoughts as we move into our journey. And furthermore, this fear also implies the realization of his holiness and our sinfulness. Now, this also is important. It is the knowledge of one's own and holiness in the presence of a holy God, just as it was with Isaiah. You remember when he met God in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. This was his reaction when he was face to face with God. While the angels covered themselves, as we read in the text, in front of the holiness of God, Isaiah found himself completely uncovered, and his sinful nature became more and more uh, obvious. And so he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. This is what it means to meet God at the beginning. The Lord's holiness actually overwhelmed Isaiah. The word undone, by the way, is elsewhere translated as perish. Cut off, completely destroyed. This is what sin will ultimately do to anyone, right? Feeling uh, cut off and destroyed and running to Yeshua, who is there, always there with open arms for us. And not only was it that his own sins became obvious, but those of the people around Isaiah as well, the, 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 the ones he was called to go and preach to. He says, and I dwell in the midst of a, People of unclean lips. These were necessary steps for someone to go through before that anointed responsibility to minister would come. And Isaiah is not alone. His reaction is a common denominator of those men and women that we find in the scriptures. To give you one more example, Job, when he finally had his wish granted to meet God, this is what he says. But my, my, now my eyes sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. What Job is saying here is, I heard about you, but I did not know that you were that holy and I'm such a sinner. This is what it means again to meet God. This experience, I believe, should be experienced at some point in time in each believer's lives.
This call of God is not for the special few, by the way. It is really for everyone. Isaiah, Job, Peters, and others were people very much like you and I. They, they began like us and became who they were after their great encounter with God himself. So here in Deuteronomy, Moses brings out a most important concept, not only for the Israelites, but for us as well. It is a concept that brings us to, to study God, study God and know him so that we might also walk with him and love him. I think it was Spurgeon who said that the highest and most important study one believer can do is to study God. This is how the fear of the Lord will be developed in us. And it is in this section where Moses takes a commandment and brings out the spirit of that commandment. Here he says something surprising, especially when one considers the context. Verse 16 of Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let's see what he says. Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no more. The command was that actually concerning circumcision, that on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin, the baby's foreskin, shall be circumcised, as we see it in Leviticus twelve thirteen. But here Moses lifts up the mere letter of the law and brings it to a greater height. God never, never intended the circumcision or any other laws to be only a ritual in nature. This is there is intent that is a, a meaning behind all of these commandments and here Moses brings a in a law and expounds on it beyond its physical significance just like Yeshua did actually on the sermon on the mount he went deep in the hearts and minds of men to expound the law and bring out its real meaning so what did Moses mean when he said that and what is the context? Unfortunately, I'm told that this is all the time that we have. We're going to see the rest of this passage next time when we meet. Be blessed. Don't I lay all out, hallelujah.